Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So if there's a theme to today's message, it's going to be basically incomplete things. That's sort of the theme that we'll look at here today. There have been a few uh, sort of famous examples of incomplete projects or even artwork, pieces of artwork in history. I want to start out with that just to give you an idea of where we're going to go today. So uh, there's a portrait here. It's called the Unfinished Portrait of FDR. So there was a woman, Elizabeth Shumatoff. She was commissioned uh, to paint his official presidential portrait. And so she showed up on April 12, 1945, and they began just before noon. And she started to paint, or she, this is what she finished. She painted this part of the portrait. They took a break for lunch, and during lunch, FDR complained of a really terrible headache. Then he actually collapsed, suffered a stroke, and died that day. So this painting obviously was unfinished because, you know, the person she's painting, she's not going to paint him after he's dead, right? It's kind of weird. So she did eventually do a second painting that she did complete. It looks, even his tie, if you look it up, is actually blue and not red. She kind of painted it from memory. Somehow she got that aspect of the power tie incorrect. But this is a famous example of an incomplete project. Another famous example of this is actually in Manhattan, New York City. It's St. John's Cathedral. It's one of the largest Episcopal churches in the country. Even by, even by square footage, it's one of the largest churches in the entire world. Construction of this began in 1892, and it took, it's kind of slow, but surely, you know, if you're building a huge building like this, it's going to take a while to pull that off. And it kept incrementally building and adding on and getting it better. But then since 1941, hardly anything has been done to this building. And we know, you can probably even see, there's no spires there, but there's even other parts of the building that are still to this day, 130 years after it began, uh, is still incomplete. And we know this because the other image you see here is a, um, a postcard from about 1910 showing what they hope to be the final product. So you can see it's, it's not that. And that was 110 years ago when that picture was first published. So this is another example of an unfinished project. Now, it is still fully functional. They still do have tours that go through there. They still have, even they host art galleries and art showings in this building. So it's functional, but still incomplete. So another example of an incomplete or unfinished assignment. And then there's this idea in college. Maybe you know about the A, B, C, D, F grade scale. You can also get an I in college. Did you know that? So if there's some sort of extreme extenuating circumstance for a student, maybe they have something, an emergency back home, they have to go away for an extended period of time, and they can't get to class and complete their work. Maybe they have an ailment themselves that prevents them from finishing the courses that they're in. They can request to have an incomplete on their grade instead of dropping the course or just failing the course. Uh, And so they can have that sort of extra time there, but it's still considered incomplete until they complete it, right? It makes perfect sense. And the idea is there is going to be some sort of deadline where you do have to complete it. It can't just be incomplete forever. There does have to be some sort of finish date. So we're in week two of this 
series that we're in called Home Sweet Home, and we are, in, we are nearing the end of the Old Testament, guys. At the end of July, we will be done with the Old Testament all the way through. We did it. We will not yet. I want to celebrate too soon, but we will be there in two weeks' time. We will be at the end of the Old Testament. And we are in this period where, as we talked about the last several weeks, the people of Judah, the ancient Jewish people, have been in over 70 years of exile. They've been displaced from their home. Uh, The capital city of Jerusalem has been destroyed, burned to the ground. The temple destroyed, burned to the ground. And so now, many decades later, they are coming back after the end of this exile to rebuild. So we looked last week at Haggai and Zechariah, who were two prophets during the time of the rebuilding of the temple. So we looked at, they were motivated, they were, you know, the the prophets really got them going here. You got to get this done, got to get it done. This is the purpose of us being here. So they got this thing built. But then 70 years, another 70 years go by, and there's still something not quite complete with the city of Jerusalem. And so we're going to pick this up this week and next week, looking at the men and the Old Testament books named Ezra and Nehemiah. So we're going to be in these two books uh, this week, looking at this incomplete task that they helped, especially Nehemiah, helped to complete. Now, a quick overview of the men and the books of which they're named. Uh, They are unique in a lot of ways. So originally, these two books were one. It was Ezra and Nehemiah. They were compiled. They were one seamless book. Uh, over, the t- over time, as it was translated into Greek and then into Latin, over, at some point, it was split into two, and there's a couple different nerdy reasons for that we won't get into. Uh, but they were separated several hundred years ago, but for a long time, all together in the same place. Another interesting thing about you'll, that you'll notice is where it's placed in the Old Testament. If you've been following us, we've been kind of nearing the, mid, like the middle or of the, the actual pages in your Bible, even beyond that. We're having to go way back, even way before Psalms, to get to Ezra and Nehemiah. Now the question is, why is that? It seems like it's out of place. Actually, it's in the correct place based on how the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is configured. So the Old Testament is configured into three sections. There's the Law, the Writings, and the Prophets. So the law is not just, you know, the first five books of the Bible that are the law. It also includes the history of the people of Israel at the end of that. It's part of the first section. So Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Esther, whom we'll talk about in a couple weeks, they end that section of the law, the history. So if you look, it is sort of chronological based on that section, right? You go from Genesis all the way to slavery in Egypt and Exodus, and then to the people in the wilderness in, the, in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you get into them in the land, then into the kings, into the divided kingdom. And now at the end of that is after the exile. So it is in that section very much chronological, even though we have to kind of skip back in, in the way that we would think of how it goes chronologically. These two books actually don't, don't belong in the prophetic section anyway because they're not prophets. Ezra's not a prophet. Nehemiah's not a prophet. In fact, Ezra is a scribe, so what his job would have been is to copy God's word. He would, by hand, word for word, you know, cross every T, dot every I, that sort of thing. He's a scribe. He's going to write down uh, the things in the scripture to hand out copies and have them for all of the different places of worship around. So it's interesting that he's a scribe, and it it seems it's possible that he would have added his own book to the end of what was there. It's like, hey, here's the new, you know, it's like, look it and stick it on the end of that thing, you know. It's possible. It's possible someone else later on added what he wrote uh, to this, but it's possible that Ezra would have added his own um, book to the Bible, which I think is interesting to consider. 
as you read Ezra, what you'll find more than the first half of the book is what we talked about last week. It's about the effort to rebuild the temple. It's about Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple. The second half gets into some other things after that. And then we get into Nehemiah, who came to um, Jerusalem a little bit after Ezra did. So Nehemiah is interesting. Uh, the book, first of all, is interesting because it's basically a journal. It's the only book of its kind. Uh, there are letters in the New Testament that are similar to that, but this is actually a first-hand personal view, sort of diary, if you will, of what Nehemiah experienced, what he lived through, what he did, what he saw. So it's very unique in that way. Nehemiah is also unique as a person. He's not a prophet. He's not really a really much of anybody. He's in fact lives in Syria where he, it says he's the cupbearer to the king of Syria. So basically he's the food tester. He, so if the king is going to get poisoned, he's going to be the first to know, which is unfortunate for Nehemiah. So that's where he, that's where we find him um, as we begin to enter into the story of mainly Nehemiah, but we're going to add Ezra in there as we go all along since they are connected at the hip basically. So Nehemiah finds himself in the capital city of Syria called Susa, where he's just serving the king like he does every day. And he gets news of, maybe you've had this happen before, where you've gotten news, but it's so late, it's not news anymore. Maybe you got news that someone in your family uh, had had a baby. And you think, I didn't even know they were expecting a child. Like, this is, I should have known something about this months ago. So you get the news kind of late. Nehemiah is sort of in this condition. So he gets news that the project in Jerusalem is still incomplete. And you might think, well, no, we talked about last week. The temple's rebuilt. Their houses are rebuilt. Neighborhoods are pretty much rebuilt. So what's left to do? But what the, his friend from Jerusalem tells him, he, sa he says, hey, give me an update. How's things going in Jerusalem? He says, it's not good, bro. He's like, the, the wall around the city is in, in ruins. The gates in the city are in shambles. It's all burned to the ground. It's not good. This is not news. So the destruction of Jerusalem happened about 140 years before Nehemiah gets this news. That's not news. It's olds, okay? And then, even then, the temple's been rebuilt for about 70 years now, but the wall around the city and the gates around the city have still not been rebuilt. Nehemiah sees an issue here. He senses a problem here, something that is still incomplete. So we'll look at the next two weeks that we look at Ezra and Nehemiah, are really four reasons why they were able to complete this incomplete task. We'll look at three of them today, and we'll focus on one key aspect of that uh, next week. So we'll look at this first one. So the first reason that Nehemiah was able to complete this incomplete task of rebuilding the walls and gates around Jerusalem is because he saw this as a task. That's the main thing. He saw this as a task. He saw that there was a need here, and then he sensed a burden to be the solution to the problem. So let's look at here, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. So he hears the news about the walls and the gates still being ruined, and he says this, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Again, not news. This has been like this for over 140 years. Even though the city's pretty much back to where it was for decades, the surrounding walls and gates that provide protection to the people there are still in ruins. This affects Nehemiah greatly. To our knowledge, he's never been to Jerusalem a day in his life. He has been born and raised in Syria, but he still identifies as a Jewish person. So he has this, this very personal, emotional reaction to this information. 
And I believe that's because God was stirring in his heart. Hey, you're going you're to have to do something about this. If it affects you to this degree, you're going to be the one to lead this project to rebuild the walls and the gates around the city. He saw a need, he saw the task, and felt a burden to meet the need and to fix the problem. Let me ask you to consider this morning, what are the tasks that you see in your life that need to be finished? What are those things, and maybe not even in your personal life, but the things around you, maybe in our city, uh, that, that really concern that bother you, that just shake you to your core? What tasks do you see that need to be accomplished? And then the second question is, how may God want to use you to help to finish some of those unfinished tasks? How may God use you to complete the tasks that need to be completed, to fix some of the problems that we have in our world? So you may think, well, I, I have no idea. Like, I know what the problems are, but I don't know which ones affect me the most or which ones bother me the most. And if, even if I do, I don't know what I can do about it. So let me give you a couple of a tip here, and we'll, we'll walk through a few examples. I'm going to say something that you may, 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 would never think I would say, okay? Today, I want you to name it and claim it, okay? Now, we're not going prosperity theology here, okay? That's not what we're doing. We're go- when it comes to what tasks are you called to repair, complete, and then how are you a part of that? We're going to have to name it and claim it, okay? Let me give you a few examples in different areas of life where this would make sense to see how you can do that. So we want to name the task and then claim ownership of helping to accomplish that task, okay? So maybe you have been here or maybe you are here right now, or even in your marriage you're having issues, It's like we're talking different languages to each other. We're talking over each other's heads. We're butting heads. We never see eye to eye. We never agree. We never get along. This is a problem. So the task that you might name is communication. So in any relationship, it doesn't have to be a husband and wife. It can be a friend that you've lost touch with or a family member that you've kind of grown apart from. Communication is most likely the key issue in this relationship. So the, the, the naming of the task is to improve communication. And then the claiming of that task would be kind of, I would think, twofold. First, we want to acknowledge the part that we've played in that communication breakdown. Okay? So if you notice, Nehemiah, he has this very personal reaction to the walls and the gates not being finished. But what he doesn't do is point blame at someone else for why that hasn't happened. He doesn't say, ah, Zerubbabel, you, you did good, but not great. You should have rebuilt the walls around the city, too, while you were rebuilding the temple. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, oh, so-and-so, they should have felt called to do that, so it's their fault this job's not done. No, he decided, hey, I'm just going to say, I'm going to claim this as my project to help to fix. Even in communication and relationships, part of that is just ownership. Where have I dropped the ball? Where have I not been clear? Where have I not been completely transparent in communication? Own and acknowledge our part in that shortcoming. And in the second part, in this specific instance of claiming this um, task, It's to then make a plan to improve on that. Like make specific goals. Be exact with our language. Let's make this agreement. We're not going to say certain words are off limits for one another. Maybe that's what you have to do. Make a list on your fridge if you have to. Maybe it's even going to counseling with that person, whether it's your spouse or a cousin or a a parent, whoever it is. You have to make those commitments, make that plan. You have to claim the task that you've named in order to see anything come from it. So that's one example. Let's move on to a, a different example to see how this still follows. Uh, maybe you perceive issues, you're concerned about the public school system. 
okay? And you look around and you're like, okay, but what? You have to th- you have, first you have to name it. It can't just be super broad. The schools are the problem, okay? You have to be specific. What, what about it concerns me? What about it irks me? Maybe it's some curriculum stuff that you're seeing that your kids are learning that you're like, mm, I'm not, we're not going that direction. Like, that's not something that we're going to do here. Or maybe it's, you know, performance of the students. You're like, okay, my kid's school continually gets poor grades from the state. Or this, this, my kid's high school, their graduation rate is so low. Something's wrong. Something's broken here. So name the issues and then claim it. So we want to personally take action of the thing that we're trying to fix, right? Again, Nehemiah doesn't say, this is so bad, you fix it. He didn't do that. He didn't say, oh, this, this affects me so bad, someone do something. He doesn't do that. He says, no, this irks me, this bothers me. I'm going to name this task to rebuild the walls and the gates, and then I'm going to personally do something about it. So even with our, with our schools, maybe it's joining your kid's PTA at their school, having more of a voice about what happens, having more of an impact in that school. Maybe even when school board elections come, whenever that is, maybe you want to think about running for that to solve the problems. Maybe it's just showing up to the meetings at the PTA or the school board to then at least let your voice be heard, you know, because if we don't do anything, then that leads to nothing, okay? Inaction leads to no change. And so we want to name it and claim it when it comes to what tasks God may have us to fix. Maybe you have a burden for the homeless community. And so you name, you name those issues in that community. They have lack of resources, lack of jobs, lack of mental health resources, all these types of things, lack of addiction help with resources, okay? So you name those issues and then you claim it. So you can wait for the government to do something. I'm just kidding. Oh, 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 oh. That was a good one, Stephen. You can, wait. <laughs> you can wait for the government to do something, or you can actually do something, all right? So you can, you can find organizations that partner uh, to help the homeless community and either give to them or get involved. You can find other people and brainstorm. Hey, I have this new idea that I've not heard anyone else ever talk about. Find some other people with that passion and see if something comes from that. So there's no limit, as we talked about last week, there's no limit to what God can do when we just are available, When we name it and claim it, this is the task, this is the problem, I'm going to claim it, the solution, I'm going to be part of that solution. And then here's the last one. Hopefully, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are passionate about reaching people for Christ. So in that case, you're going to name it. The problem is people need to know Jesus. That's an easy one. Then the claim it part, maybe not so easy, but it is simple. And that is, the question is, how can I impact people for the sake of the gospel? It's one of our core values here at First Century is to be missional. How can I impact the people that I'm around for the sake of the gospel? How can I influence people for good? How can I point people to Jesus? Not relying on the church, and, but please invite people to church. That's great, but that's not everything. Invite them to the block party. That's great. That's not everything. Invite them to the bingo. That's great, but that's not everything. It's how can I in my daily routine, in my daily life, my daily speech, my daily actions impact people for the sake of the gospel? It's name it and claim it. So what is that task that you're passionate about? What is that task that you notice remains unfinished, it's incomplete? What is that task that you have a burden for? Name it and claim it and then start making a difference. So Nehemiah, as he has this burden, he fasts and prays, fasts and prays, and prays and prays and prays and prays for months because he's got to make a pretty big request to the king. He's got to ask for a lot of time off, okay? And so he asks the king, he says, hey, 
I've got this news from my friend. The condition of Jerusalem is still not great. I feel like I'm supposed to lead this construction project. And the king says, well, how much time do you need off? And it's going to be several months. It's going to take weeks to get down there from where he is and weeks to get back. And then several, they assume, months to get this project finished. And the king grants his request and even sends supplies with him to get done. So he makes this request, but then he travels down to Jerusalem and he inspects the condition of them. He's like, wow, there's like hardly one stone left on another around the whole perimeter of this entire city. The gates are in ruin. They, they're not, you can't fix them. We're going to have to just rebuild this whole thing. So he sees the huge scope of this job and he knows he can't do it alone. So that's the second aspect of Nehemiah getting this job done. And that is the idea of team we see it we saw it last week too but we didn't talk about it as much but let's look at it here from Ezra's point of view so let's go back in time about 70 years when they're rebuilding the temple again a huge project huge scope it took a huge team to do that so in Ezra uh, chapter 2 it makes there's this big long list of names and numbers it's basically a census of who's coming back in this wave uh, really with Zerubbabel or just after to come into Jerusalem it's about 50,000 people then in Ezra chapter 3, they talk about the rebuilding of the temple beginning, and it says something very interesting in, in verse Ezra 3, 8. I don't have it on the screen, but it says that the workforce that rebuilt the temple was made up of everyone age 20 and older. Everyone being the key word there. So it took the team to make that project happen. A very similar thing in Nehemiah. When Nehemiah comes back in chapter 2 and inspects the the, the condition of the walls and the gates. Chapter 3, the work starts. Let's do this thing, okay? And so it says in Nehemiah 3, it lists basically section by section, sort of neighborhood by neighborhood. This section of the city, these families that live in that section rebuilt their section of the wall and their gate. Then, then this neighborhood, the people that live there, they rebuilt their section of the wall and rebuilt their gate. And so we see the idea of teamwork, that this in the end, this project that otherwise could have taken months and months and months was completed in just 52 days. Why? Because of teamwork. Because everyone did their little part, and those little parts added up to big parts, and the project was completed. A few things to consider here about this idea of teamwork from Ezra and Nehemiah. The first one is, no one did nothing. Again, in Ezra 3, everyone age that was able to do anything over age 20, did something. There was no laziness. There was no mooching. There was no excuses. There was, oh, my ankle hurts. And no, no, anyone who's hurt themselves lately. I'm not saying that. But every, no one did nothing, right? No one did, everyone did something. And it's this idea of team, T-E-A-M. Together, everyone achieves more. You ever heard that before? What's the corniest business talk you've ever heard? But it's true. Together, everyone achieves more. I do my part. You do your part. And before you know it, the job is done. It happened with the temple in Zerubbabel's day. It happened in Nehemiah's day, building of the walls and the gates around the city. And the truth is, the load, the task that you may be passionate about may be a huge task. The load that you feel called to carry may be a heavy load. But if we work together, if we lift together, we can get the job done and the load becomes lighter. That's what we see here with teamwork. And this is really the definition of a healthy community in general. If, if I attempt to raise my family the best that I can, and we're strong here, 
And then my neighbor attempts as best they can to raise their family and make them strong. And that has a domino effect. Guess what? That whole neighborhood now is a strong neighborhood. And then if every neighborhood does that, they they try to strengthen themselves and help one another when it's needed. Hey, you need a hand, you need to take a break, I'll take over for a while, right? If we all do that, the teamwork really does have large effects, even community-wide and culture-wide. And here's another thing about teamwork that we see in Ezra and Nehemiah is every person and every part was important. Remember, everybody worked. Nobody was too important to not work. When it comes to the temples, Zerubbabel, who's the leader, he's in there in the trenches working. Jeshua, his right-hand man, is there working. Nehemiah, who's the lead guy, he's not just sitting back saying, yeah, good job, Mm, you're doing great. And there were supervisors on the job, but they had their part to play. They did their thing, and it helped the job to go together. And also, no one and no job was too unimportant. Even the ones who were weaker found some way to get involved. Even the ones who were on the upper end of that 20 and up found a job to do and did it and accomplished the task. Every job was essential. Remember that argument a couple years ago? Essential workers, non-essential workers, you know. When it comes to, like, life, every job is essential, okay? When it comes to what we're trying to build in our communities, with our families, everyone, every job is essential. No one's too great to work. No one's too lowly to make a difference. Every job is essential. And we see the same idea in the New Testament later on. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 12, 18. He says, but our bodies have many parts, and God has put, God has put each part just where he wants it. So in your physical body, every part is important. But no part is too important, and no part is too unimportant. So your brain's important, right? Without the heart, you're dead, Okay. Your heart's important. Without your brain, you're dead. You might think your big toe's not important. It provides all the balance for your entire body, right? We know that when you stub your toe, you know it. When you step on a Lego, you know it. If if something's off, you know it. Like, I know that my lower back is very important to the rest of my body because when it's out of whack, I'm all out of whack. So I know that that's true. Even your nose hairs, I don't even know if they're a part, but they're, they're part of your body, they help keep things out that shouldn't go in, right? So every, no part is too important, and no part is too unimportant. It's the same way in life. We need people around us. We need each other. A few verses here, or a few things to reference. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens another. So we make each other better. We need one another. In Exodus 17 is the story of right after the... Uh, the ancient Israelites leave Egypt and cross the Red Sea. They're immediately met against the Amalekites. And so Joshua goes down to fight the battle. Moses goes up to the top of this large hill to view what's going on as kind of the master general guy. And it says this, he had his staff with him. As long as his arms remained up, they were winning the battle. When he got tired, his arms came down, they started to lose the battle. So two men, his brother and another man, came up and they held his arms up for him. Teamwork is what caused the victory in that battle. We need one another. We make each other stronger together. Even in the New Testament, you know, Paul, he gets all the street cred, he gets all the credit, but he always had people with him. He always had a main guy with him uh, and, or, and then other people, associates as well. He was never by himself. But he knew it took a team to accomplish his task. One of the first people he's partnered with is a man named Barnabas, which that name means son of encouragement. You need Barnabases in your life. You need encouragers in your life. 
Now, you need Pauls too, so you need to be a Paul to somebody, you need to have a Paul. You need to be a Barnabas to somebody, you need to be a Barnabas, you, know, you need Barnabases in your life. We have to work together as a team to accomplish the tasks that God has for us. It's the same in, in a church setting. So, yeah, I, I mean, I'm the pastor and I'm kind of more up front, but I'm not more important than anybody else. You get that? Like, we're, I'm a part of the body. You are a part of the body. No one is too important. And no one is too unimportant. We all work together to meet and accomplish the task that God has for us. Teamwork gets the task accomplished. Here's the third thing that we'll focus on here for a few minutes uh, this morning. The third aspect, and it's a broader idea, and it's this idea of teaching. So we have task, and then we have teamwork, but now we have teaching. So by this time, we're going to get into the walls and the gates around the city are finished. But really, the full and final task is still a bit incomplete. And here's why. It's because Ezra and Nehemiah knew we're not just rebuilding a wall. We're not just rebuilding a gate. We're rebuilding a civilization. We're rebuilding a nation. It's not, it's not just what the wall is, but what it represents, that it brings safety, it brings community, it brings togetherness. And so we're not just rebuilding something physical, but something much more important than that. They understood that. And they knew that in order to rebuild what really mattered, they had to have a solid foundation, and it must be God's word. So Nehemiah, we're going to look at this for a few minutes here. They show us that scripture, that God's teaching, God's instruction is like a hug. Okay, we're going to look at this. God's instruction, God's word, God's teaching is like a hug. There's three parts of this that we'll look at here for just a few minutes. The first part of this hug of God's teaching is to hear. So again, the wall is completed. They have a huge celebration. They all get together, but guess what they do? The first thing that they do is they hear the scripture. So this is Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2. It says this, So on October 8th, Ezra, here he is, the priest, brought the book of the law before the Included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. He preached from early morning until noon. Don't ever tell me I'm long-winded. No, no one ever says that. Like, I'm the one that's the most time-conscious of anyone in the room, always. Um, but don't ever say that because I will go Ezra on you people, okay? <laughs> so Ezra and Nehemiah, again, they knew if they're going to rebuild this nation, it had to be on a firm foundation of God's word. And if they're going to rebuild on that, and they've been, they've been separated, some have been in other countries and all around the area for who knows how long, maybe their entire lives, they're going to need to know that they know that they know God's word. They're going to have to know that. And so they start out by reading it. Here, here's what it is. Here's what it says. And it's the same with us. If we're going to have the kind of impact that we desire to have, we have to be grounded in God's word. We have to hear it. We have to read it. We have to consume it and be consumed by it. And I know the last two or three weeks now, we've talked a lot about the Bible in this way. Uh, but we're in the year of the Bible. So I, we should talk about the Bible while we're at church, I guess, right? It makes sense to do that. But here's a, very, very quickly some keys to get, why getting in God's Word is so crucial to our lives, the foundation of our lives. God's Word helps us to see God's priorities. And then if we 
see that, we can then shape and reshape our own. Scripture helps to see God's heart so then we can better focus on the tasks that God wants us to complete. Not always the task I would like to do, because I'm trying to see where God's heart is and how I fit into what he's trying to do, and that may look different than what I thought. But as I'm in God's word, learning about God's heart, I can see the right tasks, the good tasks, the best tasks that God has for me in my life. Scripture helps us to see God's character so then we can emulate him and be even a better teammate in our community as we emulate his character. So if we aim to build our lives on God's word, we have to hear it. So then the second part of this hug of God's team is then to understand. So again, skip on down to Nehemiah 8, skip down to verse number 8. Uh, it says, They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. So hearing is good, but understanding better. Hearing is good, understanding is better. And in this sort of setting, it's, it's part of my role as the pastor, what we're doing here is to try to unpack God's word, understand God's word, to then be able to apply it uh, better in our lives. But what I want to focus on here for a minute is how we can each personally, individually, on a daily, regular basis, how can we better understand God's word? There's three quick suggestions I will give to you. Uh, and they are, again, very simple to understand, but they are transformative, I believe, in understanding God's word. So how do we better understand God's word? Here's the first thing I would say. If you're going to read God's word, read a version you can understand. Read a translation you can actually understand what you're reading. Now, I know that Jesus used the King James Version. He didn't. He didn't. I know that Paul used the King James. No, he didn't, right? If you can read, now I will say the King James, very poetic, very beautiful, but if you can't understand it, what good has it done you, right? That's not the point. And so we don't need to be afraid. Now, we, we want to make sure that what, the one we're using is reliable, and there's ways to do that, but we want to make sure that we can read a translation or a version understand. Uh, also, I'd recommend reading multiple translations at times, so you can kind of get more of a 360-degree view of what this passage is trying to say, because different translations are going to use sometimes a different word here, a different phrasing of the same words there, and it's going to be, oh, that one makes way more sense than that one. They're saying the same thing, but I get this one. Or this one opens up kind of a new avenue with this specific word choice here that this one used a different. Now, okay, I put those together, and I kind of really see maybe what we're trying to do here. So don't get stuck on a translation. Maybe try in your study time to read multiple ones. That's where the Lab's very helpful. You can just click to the next one and just go and just, it's right there. Um, we'll get to that more in just a minute here as well. And that's really the second part of how to better understand God's word is to use additional reliable resources in your studying. Devotionals are a good way to do that. The kind of short spurts to help really personally apply certain truths or certain verses or certain ideas. They can explain, make it more personal to you, devotional. Um, we mentioned the Bible app that we use here on a weekly basis for notes and that sort of thing. You can use that. It even reads it to you. So you can drive, you know, and it'll read the Bible to you. Uh, and if you're, if you're a learner that learns that way, that's a great tool for you to use as well. Um, something we talked about at the beginning of the year is the Bible Project. They have some great video resources on YouTube that are good. They have a brand new app that is 
amazing. It's one of the most in-depth, crazy apps I've ever seen on the Bible. It's brand new this year. They also have a podcast that gets kind of deeper into some stuff. So, I mean, they get, sometimes they get so deep, I get lost, and I've got to rewind that. What are they, what was the topic again? How do we get here? So, the Bible Project is a great resource to use as well. Another one that we mentioned at the beginning of the year is the Bible be, you know, even going through that yourself. It just is going chronologically through the Bible, just a, a couple, maybe a chapter or two that you'll read, and then they'll recap it and give kind of an application point at the end. A great, uh, a great resource there as well. So uh, translation you can understand, resource to help you understand, and then here's the third important part about how to understand God's Word better, and that is just simply to ask questions. Now, what we're not trying to do is we're not trying to poke holes in the Bible questions. That can't be the goal, okay? We're not, trying, we're not trying to, you know, find theological flaws in the Scripture. Or we're not trying to find contradictions in the Scripture. That's not the point of the questions. But don't be afraid to say, I don't know, okay? Don't be afraid to say, I read this, and I had no idea what it said. I read that three times. I don't know what it is. I don't understand what these, sometimes, again, the prophecy books can sometimes be kind of odd. What is going on here? It's okay to acknowledge that. It's okay to ask why, what's the point of that, or why does it say that? It's fine, because the only way to get answers is to ask questions. And so if it's to me or someone else at the church, or you're looking, I I would be careful about how far down rabbit holes you go on the internet sometimes, for obvious reasons, because it's on the internet, it's got to be true. That's what Abraham Lincoln once said, that's right, that on the internet, so... You know, anyway, we want to uh, hear and understand God's word. And that's a few simple ways to do that. But here's the final thing. The final goal is not just to hear and understand. It's not information, it's transformation. So the G in hug is to go. We want to hear, understand, and then go. So Nehemiah chapter 10, one more scripture here. Nehemiah 10 verse 28. Then the rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the pagan people of the land in order to obey the law of God, together with their wives, sons, daughters, and all who were old enough to understand, they joined their leaders and bound themselves with an oath. They swore a curse on themselves if they failed to obey the law of God as issued by his servant Moses. They solemnly to carefully follow all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our Lord. So the people hear and understand God's word in chapter 8 of Nehemiah. Now in chapter 10, they determine, they agree to attempt to build their lives on that teaching. They're going to go with what they know. They make an oath. They make a promise. But here's a couple things quickly that, that they don't do, that we don't want to do, okay? They don't wait for complete and perfect understanding of the Scripture in order to then do what it says. And maybe you've tried to use that as an excuse of why you didn't want to, don't want to get into faith. I don't want to overcommit because I don't get it all yet. I have so many questions. Guess what? If you wait for the perfect time, you will never find it. It's never going to happen. If you wait for every question you have to be answered about God, it's just never going to happen. That's what job training. I'm learning as I'm going, and I'm continuing to learn as I go. So then the second thing that they didn't do is they didn't promise to always like or agree with what God says in order to follow it. Because some parts of the Bible are difficult, There are some really strange things in there. There are some things that it's just hard to follow. And really, a lot of my sinful nature doesn't want to do what God says, right? That's the the main issue. There are certain parts of the Bible I I wish they weren't there. Like, I don't like to read those things because they convict me. I don't like those things because I'd rather do my own thing. 
It's there. And here's why, one more verse as we close, here's why that's so important. It doesn't matter if we agree or like it, but we still follow. Here's why. James tells us why in the New Testament, why that's so important. James chapter 1, he says, Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves or you're deceiving yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't, it's like glancing at your face in the mirror. You see yourself, forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. He says, don't just be a hearer, but be a doer. Don't just hear and understand, but then go with what Hearers but non-doers are inauthentic. They're inconsistent. They're incongruent. It doesn't fit. Their claims don't fit their actual belief or their actual life. And they're incomplete. And again, there are things about the Bible that are hard to accept. Things about the Bible that I don't always like. But let me just say this, and I don't want to be mean when I say this, but here's the truth. Following Jesus is not a hostage situation. No one is putting a gun to your head saying, you must follow Jesus. And that's what the people here understood. They're entering willingly into this agreement with God. We are choosing to obey your commands. We're choosing to live according to your word. We're entering into a covenant, an agreement with you. So it's not a hostage situation. It's a relationship. And in relationship, there are benefits and obligations to that relationship. We experience the benefits of, of God all the time, but then we're also, we also have to meet certain obligations to enter into this relationship. And let me just say quickly, this is not legalism, so don't misunderstand. We're in the home stretch. Don't, don't, I don't want to ruin it for you here at the end. So what I'm not saying is, if you do this, then God will love you. If you follow God's word, then God will accept you. That's legalism. That's a hostage situation, okay? That's not what this is. A life of faith is a relationship, and it's the inverse. Because God has shown his great love to me, I will willingly obey him. Because through Christ I have freedom and forgiveness, I will willingly enter into an obedient relationship before God. Because he's given his to me, in response to that grace, I will give everything to him. That's what a relationship with God looks like. And an understanding of that way helps us to go with what we know. So as we engage with uh, the teaching of God's word, it will help us then to know what those tasks are better and how we can play a part in solving the problems that we see around us. And as we work together as a team based on God's word with this teamwork, we can fulfill and accomplish any task that God has ahead of us. Let's pray. God, like Nehemiah, many of us, probably all of us, some burden about something, some concern about something, some task in our personal life or in our community that we see is left incomplete. There is work to be done. So help us by your Spirit to see what those tasks are, and then help us as we pray like Nehemiah prayed, as we fast and pray, as we engage in your Word, to find out how we can help to be part of the solution to those problems, part of the completion of those tasks. And God, help us to find people and partner with people around us to make a, such a positive, powerful team because we can't do it alone. 
Nobody can. And so we need your spirit, obviously, to help us. And we need those around us to strengthen us, encourage us, make us better, make us stronger, make us wiser, to help us to do the task you have in front of us. And in the end, help everything we do to be grounded in the teaching of your word. Help every motivation we have to be grounded in your word. Help every problem that we see to be through the lens of your word. Help every solution that we try to to bring to problems be through and because of your word. It's the only way to really solve these real problems. It's the only way to really be the solution to these problems that we see and that we experience and that we face. And so I thank you that we are not on our own, but that you go before us, you are with us. No task is too great. No person is too small. Everything can be done because of your spirit and because we come together as one in your word, we can accomplish any task in front of us. So I pray for that confidence that we would walk out today with, that understanding, uh, that openness and obedience to following you in all that we do and see the results flow from that. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.